It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The origins of the word ripper are uncertain, as although its first recorded use was in the year 1615 to describe a primitive cutting tool used by tanners, couriers and leather workers to rip and tear apart cowhide. By the late 1800s, in London's East End, the word ripper had re-entered the modern parlance with a much darker and deadlier meaning denoting a murderer who takes great pleasure in the slashing and tearing of his victim's flesh. As around the impoverished streets of Whitechapel, a maniac stalked the city's sex workers. And as gripping as the story of Jack the Ripper is, even today, no one knows his name, his face, his age, his description, his motivation, his method, the exact span of his murders, which victims he killed, or even if he actually existed at all. Since then, the term Ripper has only been adopted by the press to describe three British serial killers or spree killers during their reign of terror. Jack the Ripper, the Yorkshire Ripper, and a maniac so terrifying, so fascinating, and yet so unassuming, that during the dark of the Blitz of World War II, across London's West End, and over just five days, he would brutally attack six women with escalating levels of sadism and violence. With much of the evidence suppressed by the government and the press, for fear of unsettling a weak morale in London during the fear of the early 1940s. The true story of the West End's very own Ripper has long been lost, rehashed and retold in a rambling mix of confusingly short fragments. But after eight months of intensive research, Using all the original declassified police investigation files, military records and court transcripts of the case, the puzzle is now complete. And what follows over the next few weeks is a definitive history of one of Britain's deadliest, strangest and long-forgotten spree killers. My name is Michael. I am your tour guide. This is Murder Mile, and I present to you part one of the full, true, and untold story of the Blackout Ripper.
Today, I'm standing on Montague Place in Marlebone, W1. A picturesque upper-class enclave hidden from the hustle and bustle of city life. Just three streets north of Oxford Street, four streets south of Baker Street, one street east of Edgware Road, and with Soho, two tube stops to the west. Surrounded by a rich mix of four to six-storey townhouses, from the Regency period to the Georgian, Edwardian and Victorian era, Montague Place, which borders the ultra-affluent Montague Square, whose perfectly manicured private garden is alarmed, patrolled and protected by ornate wrought iron gates, with a key which you can only acquire if you were schooled at Eton, holidayed at Monty, bunked with a boy called Jollyon, or your uncle's a QC, don't you know? This area aims to keep the hoity-toity in and the hoi polloi out. And with no beggars, no buskers, and no boozers pebble-dashing its pristine paths with steamy great clumps of working-class puke, what you're left with are rows of half-empty houses full of cocks with cooks, burks with butlers, drips with drivers, fannies with nannies, and posh pricks protected by private security, who are less likely to be robbed and more likely to be slapped as they're manhandled back to man-child mansions. Being too posh to scream, too British to cry, and incapable of cacking their pants, having been born with a fine selection of silver cutlery poking out of their poo pipes. And even though, during the 60s, they actually let some scousers in, called John Lennon and Ringo Starr, being brightly lit, super clean and regularly patrolled by the police. Here in Montague Place, under the shade of the Swiss and the Swedish embassies, you will always feel safe and secure. But appearances can be deceptive. As it was here, in the calm of Montague Place, on the cold winter's night of Sunday the 8th of February 1942, that a lone woman called Evelyn Hamilton was murdered. No one heard her scream, no one saw her struggle, and no one came to help. London's West End was about to be gripped by five nights of absolute terror, where no woman was safe as a serial sexual sadist stalked the city streets with murderous intent. And he was known as the Blackout Ripper. Born on the 8th of February, 1901, Evelyn Margaret Hamilton was one of four sisters born to Lucy, a recent widow whose deceased husband's insurance had insured his family's finances after his untimely death, giving them stability and security as the economic depression of World War I loomed large. Raised in the idyllic tranquility of the semi-rural village of Wrighton, 
in Tynan Weir, in the northeast of England. Far from the industrial sprawl and smog of the Newcastle Mills and the Sunderland shipyards, Evelyn's upbringing was the epitome of picture perfect. Surrounded by fresh fruit, clean air, long walks, and no crime. And being a progressive woman in an era where the best a young girl could aspire to be was as a machinist, a maid, or married off, Lucy enrolled her four daughters in the best schools. Having studied at Skerries College in Newcastle and the prestigious medical school at the University of Edinburgh, by 1923, 22-year-old Evelyn graduated with a diploma in chemistry and pharmacology. Having qualified as a chemist and a druggist, over the next 18 years, she focused on sharpening her skills, climbing the career ladder, and seeing more of the country. As she moved from job to job in Loughborough, Leicestershire, Surrey, London, and later in Essex. By November 1941, with the economic ravages of World War II having started to bite and rationing in full swing, Evelyn had secured herself a position as manager and pharmacist in the respected high street store of Yardley's Chemists at number 9 Market Place in the market town of Romford in Essex. And as qualified as she was for the job, three months later, she would be gone. On the surface, Evelyn Hamilton seemed unremarkable and easily forgettable. As being just five foot three and a half inches in height and a slender seven stone in weight, who wore very little makeup or perfume, never smiled nor spoke, and always dressed down and looked dour. As exceptionally bright as she was, she never wanted to be noticed and blended into the background. Being fastidiously neat, unfashionably dressed, and wrapped in a thick excess of shapeless woolen layers, being thin-skinned, shivery, and prone to goosebumps, even on the warmest of days. With short brown hair, a furrowed brow, and droopy brown eyes, which hung with the air of a sadness of a lonely woman who had never felt loved, was never told she was beautiful, and never once had a best friend nor boyfriend in her 41 years. She had become a shadow of her former self. Evelyn was a very private person, who was quiet, uptight and troubled. Described by her employer, Mr Bernard Gray, as agitated, eccentric, and that she often looked as if she was frightened, being prone to bouts of insomnia and depression, she never found peace within herself and regularly returned to her mother's house in Wrighton for long periods of rest and recuperation. But Romford was not for Evelyn. 
and as a bookworm surrounded by sheep farmers. Here she felt mentally, physically and emotionally starved. And what she needed was some fun, love and excitement. Friday the 6th of February 1942 started like any other day. Being a creature of habit, Evelyn rose at 7:30 sharp. Washed in the hand basin, nibbled on a breakfast apple, and dressed in her practical clothes she'd laid out the night before. A thick woolen jumper, a thick woolen skirt, stockings, a bra, a white vest, and two pairs of undergarments to keep out the cold. With the February snow being thick underfoot and the icy winter wind howling, she wrapped up warm in a full-length camel hair coat, an orange and pea-green woolen scarf, a green woolen turban-style hat, and black leather gloves. And having applied a thin coat of pink lipstick, hardly a shade darker than her own lips, draped over her shoulder a beige canvas gas mask standard issue during world war 2 and clutching her dark leather handbag which looked less like a fashion accessory and more like a wrapped parcel she gave a polite smile to mrs eva lever the landlady of her middle class lodging called the haven on linkway in hornchurch and headed towards the bus stop As always, she walked to the bus stop alone. She stood at the bus stop alone and opened the shop alone. Not realizing, as as much as she hated her new routine, that she would never do it ever again. Being a tall four-story brick and sandstone building Right in the heart of Romford's busiest market, Yardley's chemist shop at number nine Market Place should have been a profitable business, but with times hard, tensions high, and the economy in disarray, as Britain entered its third year in a six-year war, sixteen months after the Dunkirk evacuation and sixteen months before the D-Day landings, as the invading forces took France and loomed nearer the English coast. It began to look like Germany would win. So sadly, both Evelyn Hamilton and her 14-year-old assistant, Mrs. Bettina Grace Gray, were given their notice. And being paid a wage of five pounds per week, roughly two hundred and fifty pounds today, Evelyn was given one month's pay. And the doors of Yardley's chemists closed forever. Two days later, she would be dead. On the morning of Sunday, the eighth of February, nineteen forty-two, Evelyn rose at seven thirty sharp, lying alone in a single bed. In a drab little rented room, 
another heavy cloud of depression hung over her. And although she hated where she lived, where she worked, and being unemployed, she quickly found work as a pharmacist in the port town of Grimsby in Lincolnshire. A place where she had no family, no friends, and would once again be a single woman in a lonely bed in an empty room. Having written a letter to her mother, Lucy, which she did every week without fail, using the green and black pencil she'd loaned from her assistant, Bettina, and had forgotten to give back, Evelyn added a few pounds of her £20 severance pay to help her doting mother in her old age and then proceeded to pack. Into a large brown trunk, she placed her treasured possessions, her family photos of her mother and three sisters, a stack of books, mostly chemistry textbooks, a history of women's suffrage and political literature as she was an ardent socialist, and her practical clothes, all of which were neatly washed, ironed, and etched with a laundry mark, E2474. Into a medium-sized overnight bag, she placed a toothbrush, a hairbrush, a book, and a change of clothes. Perched next to that sat her dark brown leather handbag, containing a white metal lighter, a veneer cigarette case, a metal compact, a pink lipstick, a set of handkerchiefs etched with an E2474 laundry mark, a purse containing what remained of her £20 severance pay, roughly £1,000 today, next to which she'd laid out her coat, hat, scarf, gloves and gas mask. And having settled her account in full with Mrs. Eva Lever, the landlady of the Haven, politely declined a spot of tea and left instructions for a railway man to arrive on Monday morning to collect her trunk and send it to Grimsby. Evelyn sat alone on her single bed, smoked a cigarette and opened four brightly coloured cards from her family as not only was today her last day alive, it was also her 41st birthday. What follows are the last known movements of 41-year-old Evelyn Margaret Hamilton. On Sunday the 8th of February 1942, at 7.20pm, dressed in her camel hair coat, brown velvet underjacket, white vest, green jumper, brown skirt, brown stockings, black shoes, and her usual two pairs of undergarments. With a pea green and orange scarf and a green woolen hat, Evelyn arrived at Hornchurch train station, clutching a medium-sized suitcase, a brown leather handbag, and purchased a one-way ticket to London. Arriving at Oldgate East at 9.40pm, four hours after dusk, the city was in pitch black as the wartime blackout was in force. 
And with all the streetlights dimmed, doors closed, curtains shut, and vehicle headlights reduced to mere slits to obscure the urban sprawl from the German bombers above. Using her trusty eight-inch metal torch, Evelyn joined a sea of people with dull bobbing lights as she took a Hammersmith and City Line train nine stops west to Baker Street. With heavy winter snow crunching underfoot and an icy wind blowing in from Siberia, although she had barely a fifth of a mile further to go, Evelyn hailed a black cab and was driven by Abraham Israel Ash to the Three Arts Club at number 76 Gloucester Place. A hotel she had stayed at many times before and always felt safe, warm and comfortable. Before catching the early train to Grimsby and her new life up north. The time was 10.15pm, and so far, nothing out of the ordinary had happened. Her trains were on time, her cab driver was pleasant. She hadn't been shortchanged, swindled, followed, accosted or abused. And like many other ordinary people living in a sprawling metropolis like London, with no debts, drink or drug issues, and no enemies whatsoever. She was an entirely unlikely person to ever be murdered. Evelyn was just a shy, nervous lady, going about her business, and not being a bother to anyone. With half a crown covering the taxi fare, and Abraham's tip for carrying her suitcase up the three arts club stairs, Evelyn checked into a single room for one night and didn't unpack. Instead, feeling a little peckish, having politely declined her former landlady's kind offer of a spot of tea, Evelyn asked Mrs Kathleen Rosa Jones, manageress of the Three Arts Club, if food was still being served. But with the kitchens now closed, Evelyn set out into the dark streets of Marleybone, in search of sustenance. The time was 10.50pm. And with the street being cold, her stomach having rumbled too many times, and the batteries of her metal torch slowly dying as the dim bulb began to fade, Evelyn hopped in a black cab and headed half a mile south to the one place that was always open and never stopped serving. This was her last cab ride to her final meal, which passed a little side street behind her hotel called Montague Place, where just a few hours later, Evelyn Hamilton would be found dead. The cab ride should have taken little more than five minutes. But Evelyn's whereabouts over the next hour are unknown. Where she went, 
nobody knows. Who she saw, nobody knows. What she did, nobody knows. But it's unlikely that anything suspicious or untoward happened. It's just an odd gap in the last known movements of a shy, quiet lady with very few friends, a fondness for solitude, and a deep desire to be anonymous, blend into the crowd, and never be noticed. Just before midnight, at the junction of Oxford Street and Great Cumberland Street, now the site of the Cumberland Hotel, which overlooks the prestigious addresses of Marble Arch, Park Lane and Hyde Park, Evelyn entered Maison Lyonnaise, a well-respected five-storey corner house tea room, one of five in London, which was famed for its speedy service, 24-hour restaurants, live entertainment, and food hall packed full of delicatessens, chocolatiers, florists and hair salons. Witnessed by waitress Betty Whitcover walking into the brasserie, although she was neither seated nor served by Betty, she felt a sympathetic pang for Evelyn. A lonely woman sitting by herself amongst a sea of raucous friends, kissing couples and boozy servicemen. As she raised a single solitary toast to herself on this, her 41st birthday. According to her autopsy, her final meal was a small glass of white wine, two slices of wholemeal bread, and a main course, mostly consisting of beetroot. After that, Evelyn Hamilton disappeared. No one saw her talk to anyone. No one saw her leave. And she was never seen alive again. On the following morning of Monday the 9th of February 1942, at 8.40am, Local Paddington plumber Harold Batchelor and his mate William Baldwin were walking to their first job of the day. The cold air caused their cheeks to flush. The biting wind made their noses sniffle. And under their boots they crunched a fresh layer of pristine white snow as they crossed over Gloucester Place and into Montague Place. On the left-hand side of Montague Place, positioned half on the pavement, half on the road, and built in a neat little line, were three surface air raid shelters, one of thousands which dotted the city. Being seven and a half foot high, seven and a half foot wide, with a 23 foot long middle shelter and two half its size either side, Although these three oblong blocks made of 14-inch brick, one-foot-thick reinforced concrete roofs, and covered with 20-kilo sandbags wouldn't protect its terrified occupants from a direct hit, one year earlier it had saved over 100 residents from certain death. 
having shielded them from the blast wave, shrapnel and falling debris of a Nazi bomb. So in Montague Place, these air raid shelters were a place of safety. Last night, though, there wasn't an air raid. No German bombers had flown by and no bombs were dropped. So apart from the occasional homeless man or kissing couple, the shelters would be empty. But as Harold and William walked by the larger middle shelter, on the snow-speckled pavement, they spotted the broken top of an eight-inch metal torch, a lady's green woolen turban-style hat, and poking out of the brick entrance was a woman's left leg lying prostrate on the floor, wearing brown stockings and practical black shoes. The crime scene was promptly secured by PC John Mills, ready for the arrival of Divisional Detective Inspector Leonard Clare at 8.55am. With her handbag missing, police were uncertain who this woman was. All they knew was that she was in her early 40s, 5 foot 3.5 inches tall, 7 stone in weight, wearing a full-length camel coat, a pea-green and orange woolen scarf, a pale shade of pink lipstick, and that she had been murdered. Being a fastidiously neat woman, whose unfashionable clothes were professionally cleaned, pressed and etched with the laundry mark E2474, now she lay dumped in the wet gutter of the road which ran right through the centre of the damp, dark shelter her clothes all dirty, torn and in disarray. With her left leg poking out of the entrance, her right leg remained within, raised and resting on the shelter's brickwork, her practical black shoes badly scraped and scuffed. Under her brown stockings lay fragments of brick mortar, which had broken away from the wall, as in a desperate fight for her life, she had fought back as a violent struggle took place. Denying her any hint of modesty, her calf-length brown skirt had been pulled up to her hips, her torn bloomers and ripped knickers pulled down to her knees, her legs spread wide, and the genitals of a deeply private woman, exposed for all to see. What hatred he'd had for this small, timid woman, to humiliate her in such a way, nobody would know. But with her camel hair coat splayed open under her cold corpse, her white vest torn, deliberately exposing her right breast. Police felt that not only had she been posed, but that her punishment wasn't just a violent and sickening death, but also her humiliation. And although her pea-green and orange woolen scarf 
slightly masked her bruised cheeks and bloodied lips. Peeping out from above, her eyes were etched with terror. Three days later, 41-year-old Evelyn Margaret Hamilton was identified at Paddington Mortuary by Mrs. Kathleen Rosa Jones, manageress of the Three Arts Club. Her former employer, Mr. Bernard Gray of Yardley's Chemists in Romford, and by her sister, Kathleen Hamilton. At 3 p.m. that afternoon, an autopsy was held at Paddington Mortuary by the Home Office pathologist and father of forensic science, Sir Bernard Spilsbury, in the presence of Divisional Detective Inspector Leonard Clare. But the evidence presented before them was perplexing. With her handbag, purse, money, and all forms of ID missing, police considered the possible motive of robbery, but were confused as to why her attacker had left an expensive gold watch on her left wrist. With no sperm found in her vagina, police ruled out rape, as sexual intercourse had not taken place but they couldn't account for the small amount of blood found in and around her vagina. And with abrasions to her legs, scalp and back, with a one-inch cut above her left eyebrow, a two-inch bruise on her right cheek, a three-inch abrasion on the back of her neck, and an odd series of small cuts on her right breast. Was this a physical assault? Or the work of a sexual sadist. What they knew for certain was that, owing to her body's temperature and state of decomposition, Evelyn Hamilton's time of death was roughly 1am, barely an hour after the waitress Betty Whitcover had seen her in Maison Lyonnaise, a time which was corroborated by her broken gold watch and that, with her bloodshot eyes, her dilated pupils, her flushed swollen face, her fractured larynx, her engorged lips, fingers and swollen tongue, which jutted from the white froth of her open mouth, with a clear bruised outline of a thumb over her throat and four fingers pressed into the mottled flesh at the back of her neck. Police were certain that she had been throttled to death by a left-handed strangler. But sadly, that's where the investigation into the murder of Evelyn Hamilton stalled. As with no motive, no witnesses, and no fingerprints whatsoever, very little physical evidence beyond her torn clothes, her broken torch, some scuffed shoes, a few fragments of brick mortar, and a tin of Ovaltine tablets and a pack of master's safety matches, which could have belonged to anyone, as well as the fresh snow having masked any footprints, and the last hour of Evelyn's life being a complete mystery. Her shocking murder on Montague Place asked more questions than it answered, such as, if she took a cab from the hotel to the restaurant, 
why didn't she take one back? If she walked back, why would she do so, alone, in the cold, and with a broken torch? And with Montague Place being barely a ten-second walk from her hotel, why would she go inside of an air raid shelter on a night when there were no air raids? Was Evelyn followed? Did Evelyn have a dark side? Had Evelyn a secret enemy? Or was forty-one-year-old Evelyn Hamilton, a bookish woman? Who was too shy to talk, too timid to dress up, and too reticent for red lipstick? Who hid in the background of life and had no experience of love? Was this painfully lonely woman, approached by a man, flattered by his attention, brought a birthday drink, and then lured to her death by the first man ever to tell her that she was beautiful? That we shall never know. Her murder would have remained unsolved, but during that terrifying week in February 1942, across the dark-lit, bombed-out streets of London's West End, as the petrified people scurried in the darkness for fear of being murdered by the German bombers which loomed above, a sexual sadist stalked the city streets. Evelyn Hamilton was the first victim. But she wouldn't be the last of the Blackout Ripper. One year into the Second World War, German Chancellor Adolf Hitler and the Nazi High Command sought to deplete, destroy, and demoralize Britain with a series of devastating bombing raids, beginning with what the Luftwaffe called Unternahme Seeschlange, or Operation Sea Snake, a terrifying attack from the clouds, so fast and so deadly that the British people referred to it by the German word for lightning. They called it the Blitz. Between the 7th of September 1940 and the 11th of May 1941, German bombers rained down over 41,000 tons of high explosives, incendiary devices, and parachute mines onto Britain's industrial cities. Their terrifying tactics, designed to frighten the people into submission and bring Britain to its knees. But amidst the smoky, bombed-out inferno of London's West End, with a blackout in force, which plunged the soot-covered city into a perpetual darkness, as the petrified populace scoured the skies for German mass murderers who loomed above, a person of pure evil stalked the city streets. In the early hours of Monday, the ninth of February, nineteen forty-two. Evelyn Hamilton, a shy and timid pharmacist, who had celebrated her forty-first birthday alone, was found strangled in an air raid shelter in Montague Place, 
Initially, the police thought that this was just a one-off attack. But little did they know that they had a serial sexual sadist and a spree killer in their midst. And his killings had only just begun. Over five days, six unrelated women across different parts of London's West End would be brutally attacked with escalating levels of sadism, torture and violence. But with his bloodlust unquenched, just one day later, he would go in search of his next victim. My name is Michael. I am your tour guide. This is Murder Mile. And I present to you part two of the full, true and untold story of the Blackout Ripper. Today, I'm standing on Wardour Street, back in the heart of Soho, one road west of Old Compton Street, and barely a one-minute walk from the murder sites of the deadly dentist Isidore Ziefert, shadowy sex worker Margaret Cook, sweet-faced fanny seller Ginger Ray, crazed cock-chopper William Stolzer, and chronic Canadian Willie fiddler Richard Rhodes Henley. Sadly, this unsightly side of Wardour Street has been stripped of its soul and replaced by no shops for numpties, takeaways for twits and wanky eateries for the anally retentive, which somehow survive by selling one type of food, whether ham, fish or hummus, by avoiding one type of food, whether meat, wheat or milk, by rebranding buffets as street foods, salads as main meals, sandwiches as some kind of luxury, and where cigar shops flog off 30 quid's worth of old rolled leaves to non-smokers who light up, lean back, and aim to act cool, slick, and aloof, but instead look green, sick, and queasy. And although by the 1940s, this side of Soho was full of drafty, bombed-out, hardly habitable terraces, only suitable as homes for the less fortunate, many of which have since been demolished. It was here, at 153 Wardour Street, that an ambitious woman called Evelyn Oatley came to London to seek her fame and fortune. But instead, she found infamy as the second victim of the Blackout Ripper. Born Evelyn Judd on the 5th of April 1907 in Earby in Lancashire, a small rural town hidden in the barren wilds of the former West Yorkshire Dales, its chief occupations being lead mining and farming. With a population of roughly 70 families and six times as many cows, sheep and pigs. Raised by her beloved mother, Rosina, busy father and one brother. Although her childhood was poor but pleasant. For young Evelyn, 
Eby was an industrial eyesore in a dull rural setting, where the air hung with soot and the strong stench of manure, a far cry from the bright lights of London's West End. Desperate to escape, to act, to sing, to dance, and to blossom into Shaftesbury Avenue's latest sensation, Selling out theatres every night and surrounded by adoring fans, lackeys and lovers. Evelyn's hopes were dashed early. As with Earby, not blessed with a single playhouse, drama school and no theatre producers driving by, eager for a new blonde ingenue to headline his latest West End shows. And maybe later, Broadway and even Hollywood too. Evelyn left school aged 14 with no skills, nor qualifications, and drifted into a series of dead-end jobs, trapped by isolation and circumstance. Still dreaming of being famous and adored, aged 15, unmarried Evelyn gained local notoriety by becoming pregnant by an unknown man. A big scandal in the early 1920s, so unable to support the child, Evelyn's daughter was put up for adoption, later living her life somewhere in Canada. By 1932, 25-year-old Evelyn Judd met Harold Mullinson Oatley, a kind, loving and sweet-natured poultry farmer who could provide her with a good life, full of love, money and a sweet little bungalow on Rover Road in the larger but equally isolated town of Thornton in Lancashire. But Evelyn didn't want to be a chicken farmer's wife. She wanted to be an actress. So being too timid to dissuade her of the dangers of big city life and hoping that she'd eventually see sense, get the acting bug out of her system and come back to marry him, her beloved boyfriend Harold financed Evelyn's trip to London to fulfil her dreams. In late 1934, 27-year-old Evelyn Judd moved into a cheap and tiny lodging on Great Portland Street at the back of Oxford Circus. And having adopted the stage name of Lita Ward, she eked out a meagre living as a nightclub hostess, a dancer in disreputable theatres, and even at Soho's infamous Windmill Theatre, where every night topless girls jiggled their tits and swung their tassels to crowds of drunk, drooling deadbeats. To most people, Evelyn's new lifestyle may have seemed cheap, tacky and low rent. But as a country girl from a remote northern town, whose ambitions had been crushed for 27 long years, now she was embracing every ounce of big city life, and finally, her dream had come true. But by March 1936, after 16 months in the bright lights of the West End, fame hadn't come calling. For this almost 30-year-old topless dancer, work had dried up, as younger legs and prettier faces scored all the best roles. 
and with her money having ran out, Evelyn returned to the poultry farm, where just a few months later, on the 25th of June 1936, she married Harold and became Mrs. Evelyn Oatley. As predicted, married life wasn't for Evelyn. She found no joy in staying in every night, playing Scrabble with her homebody husband. No peace being tucked up in bed with a book by 9pm. And no reward cleaning out crap out of the chicken coops. As having tasted the excitement of the big city, she knew she wanted more. trapped in a dull life of squawking birds. In local hotels, under an assumed name, Evelyn started clandestine affairs with married men and continued to live and work in London, all under the nose of Harold, who was too ineffectual to stop her and too dull to offer her an alternative. One year later, with money tight, tensions fraught, and his poultry farm having gone out of business. Even though he'd been forced to move into his aunt's house in nearby Cleveleys in Lancashire, as desperate as Harold was to please his wayward wife, although they remained married and stayed in touch, Evelyn returned to London, knowing she would never be a big star, but loving the nightlife. By February 1939, with Britain on the brink of Second World War, Evelyn Oatley had moved into a tiny one-roomed flat on the first floor of 153 Wardour Street. A simple four-storey townhouse with a ground floor of five houses converted into a motorcar showroom called Shaw and Kilburn. And although she shared a kitchen and a bathroom with five other flats, and her small room was simply furnished with a double divan bed, a sofa, an armchair, a table, a washstand, a wireless radio, and a gas fire with a coin slot meter. Even though she kept some plates and cutlery in the wardrobe, mostly she'd eat out, spending her nights drinking, dancing, and attracting the attention of men. With her dancing roles having dried up and the adulation and applause of audiences over, Evelyn wanted a gentleman admirer to sweep her off her feet. A man with money who would lavish her with gifts, flowers, love and trinkets. And having a lust for real men who were tall and toned, with easy smiles, kind blue eyes, and neatly dressed in military uniforms. While still married, Evelyn had several boyfriends, all of whom Harold knew about, and none of whom looked like Harold. As World War II broke out, a blackout was enforced and British and Canadian servicemen flooded the West End 
with money to spend, drinks to be drunk, and girls to be chased, Evelyn should have had the pick of the crop. But too often, having had her heart broken by these heartless heroes, every time this would happen, Harold would always be there, as a shoulder to cry on, and to pick up the pieces. And as much as they remained close, with Harold travelling the 12-hour round trip from Lancashire to London every few weeks, he naively believed that his beloved wife worked as a nightclub hostess and a dancer in the West End theatres. But for the last six years, ever since they'd been married, Evelyn Oatley known locally as Lita Ward, had earned herself a living as a Soho prostitute. Being five foot one inches tall, seven stone in weight, with dark blonde curly hair, blue eyes and a cheeky smile, Evelyn was well regarded amongst Soho sex workers as fun, honest and generous. And as a confident woman, Evelyn had no qualms about picking up punters and bringing them back to her flat for drinks and sex. But being flirtatious and charming, she was also adept at luring any potential sugar daddies, not just to spend the night, but also to spend the day after, with free meals, expensive gifts and shopping trips. And as much as Evelyn was a woman of morals, who never stole from customers, never worked on Sundays, and only picked up punters on her patch, she was also a heavy drinker of scotch, not picky about the men she picked up. And according to a close friend, she was a desperately lonely lady who craved attention, feared solitude, and longed to be loved. The last time Harold saw Evelyn was on Tuesday the 3rd of February 1942 at Euston Station. As from the train which took him back to Lancashire, he waved his beloved wife goodbye. Hoping one day that she would come back to him and never realising that the next time he would see her, she would be dead. Six days later, on the morning of Monday the 9th of February 1942, in an air raid shelter on Montague Place, barely one mile from Wardour Street, the strangled and mutilated body of Evelyn Hamilton would be found. Police thought it was a one-off. But with his sadism still unsated, that evening, the blackout ripper would stalk the West End looking for his next victim, and her name was Evelyn Oakley. The evening of Monday the 9th of February 1942 was bitterly cold. As an icy wind blew from the east, swirling the freshly settled snow down the half-empty streets of the West End. On her regular patch, a stretch of pavement from Lawley's Fine Bone China Shop on Regent Street to Piccadilly Circus. 
Evelyn paced back and forth to keep herself warm. The piping hot bowl of vegetable stew and a quick shot of scotch that she'd just polished off at the Leicester Arms pub, straining to keep out the cold. Dressed fashionably in a bright red jumper, a tweed two-piece jacket and skirt, black boots, a black leather handbag and a black woolen hat, her top decorated with three brooches, one yellow, one red and one in white metal. Her style was impossible to see, as with the night being so infernally cold, Evelyn had her knee-length black coat buttoned up to her neck. But with business being bad, boredom creeping in, amidst the miserable darkness of the blackout, as switched off for the full duration of the war were the famous Piccadilly Circus lights, Evelyn stood in the doorway of Lawley's, illuminated by the red-hot tip of her cigarette, which was taken from her stylish white metal cigarette case. Etched with her initials, LW, short for Lita Ward, a sole reminder of her lost acting ambition. And inside, a photo of her beloved mother, Rosina. Feeling cold and lonely, Evelyn wouldn't be choosy about who she picked up, as all money was good, and all she wanted was to head home, pop on the fire, and hop into bed. But soon, she would be cold for a very different reason. And what follows are the last known sightings of Evelyn Oatley. At 10.15pm, on the corner of Regent Street and Piccadilly Circus, Two Soho prostitutes and close pals of Evelyn, one blonde called Laura Denmark and a brunette called Molly de Santos Alves, waved to their friend as she stood outside Lawley's smoking. With both Laura and Molly having been chatted up by two tall, slim and handsome, if slightly sozzled RAF men from the Royal Air Force Reception Centre in nearby Regent's Park, they took the men back to their flats. Molly headed to Denham Street with the red-headed corporal, and Laura headed to Frith Street with the fair-haired aircraftman. At 11pm, outside Monaco's, a reputable late-night restaurant once used as a pickup place for sex workers and servicemen, on the corner of Shaftesbury Avenue and Piccadilly Circus, a part-time waitress and prostitute called Anne Carew saw Evelyn, who she knew as Lita Ward, chatting to a Canadian soldier dressed in a khaki battle dress. And although cold, she seemed chatty and only a little bit tipsy. And seeing Anne, she waved, wished her a good night, and guided the military man towards her flat through the darklit streets of Soho guided solely by the dim light of her six-inch metal torch. At 
At a little after 11.20pm, Ivy Cecilia Poole, a funfair attendant and Evelyn's neighbour, who lived in the adjoining flat on the first floor of 153 Wardour Street, saw Evelyn escorting a man up the wooden staircase. But he wasn't Canadian, or in khaki battle dress, but a young, tall and pasty civilian in a brown suit with horn-rimmed glasses. And although he wasn't Evelyn's type, as the night was cold, money was money, and with most men's sexual prowess, being less of a stud muffin and more of a two-pumps and a squirt merchant, Evelyn knew he'd only need a few minutes until he was done, before she would head out again and pick up another punter. As Evelyn closed the wooden door, marked with a metal plate which read Lita Ward, Ivy heard Evelyn and the young man chat. As with their penny-pinching landlord having split one large room in half with two folding doors to create two smaller flats, the walls were wafer-thin and Ivy could hear everything. Sharing such a small space, Evelyn was always so considerate of noise. But that night, she wasn't. Instead, switching her bedside radio from news to music, she turned up the volume until the recognisable sounds of the couple's mumbling, fumbling and groaning was drowned out. And eager to sleep, Ivy popped in her earplugs placed her pillow over her head and nodded off around midnight. That was the last time that 34-year-old Evelyn Oakley was heard or seen alive ever again. The next morning... On Tuesday the 10th of February 1942 at 8.20am, with her room all dark and silent, Ivy had slept so soundly over the last eight hours that she barely heard the loud banging on her door. Alerted to the noise by her startled cat, Ivy groggily unlocked the door to see the familiar face of Charles Victor Fleming of the Central London Electricity Company, who along with his assistant, George Kenny Carter, were here to read each flat's electricity meters and collect this month's shillings from the coin slot. It was just an ordinary day for three ordinary people going about their ordinary lives. As with Ivy, who was still sporting her bathrobe and slippers, George knocked loudly on Evelyn's door. But with it barely being an hour after dusk, he got no reply. Knocking louder, George noticed the door was ajar. But as a timid young man, who was too polite to simply barge into a strange lady's boudoir uninvited, and risk seeing things that a young man should never see, like frilly things and ladies' monthly unmentionables, George continued to knock. 
sent in the shy youth frustration and sporting some awful bed hair. Ivy tapped loudly as she opened the door. With the windows blacked out, the lights off, the fire out, and the last shilling in the electricity meter having been spent, as much as Ivy flicked the light switches, the flat remained in pitch black. But as they entered the room, it was clear that they weren't alone. Someone was there, lying on the bed, all silent and still. And as George Kenny Carter flicked on his torch to see who it was, as the dull light illuminated the shape on the bed, he stopped, blinked and gasped having seen a sight which no one should ever see. First on the scene at 8.35am was Inspector John Hennessy of West End Central Police Station, having spent the night at the police section house on Broadwick Street, just one street behind, who secured the scene to ensure that nothing was touched and was swiftly followed by Detective Inspector Clarence Jeffrey and Divisional Surgeon Dr Alexander Baldy at 8.50am and Divisional Detective Inspector Charles Gray at 9.15am. With no windows open, no fire on, and the female victim, a 5 foot 1 inch mid-30s blonde, in the early stages of rigor mortis, Dr. Baldy recorded that she had been dead for at least four hours. And although the name on the door read Lita Ward, she was quickly identified as Evelyn Oatley. What startled the police, beyond the sickening extent of her horrific injuries, was how tidy the room was. Nothing had been tipped over, very little was broken, and there didn't seem to have been a struggle. In fact, almost everything seemed to have been just as Evelyn had left it just a few hours before. It was almost as if she had welcomed her attacker in, had known him, liked him, or simply felt comfortable with him. And yet this shocking and vicious attack had come out of the blue. On the mantelpiece, where she'd always kept them, Evelyn had placed the keys to her flat. On the sofa were her clothes, neatly placed and ready to be reworn. A bright red jumper, a black hat and a tweed two-piece jacket and skirt. On an armchair, she'd placed her black boots, a slip, a brassiere and a pair of black stockings by the fire and in the right-hand side of her wardrobe, where she always put it, was her black knee-length coat, along with her black leather handbag. Oddly, the only damage in the whole room was the wardrobe's lock, which, although the key was still in it, had been violently broken off. Evelyn's handbag had been removed, and the contents strewn over the sofa. And whoever the attacker was, 
he'd ignored her bank books and ration coupons, and only stole two items, roughly £30, which is £600 today, from her brown leather purse and her white metal cigarette case, etched with her initials LW, and inside, a photo of her mother. Was this a robbery? Was this a burglary? Was this a rape? The police were perplexed. But whoever it was who'd attacked her had a deep-rooted hatred for either prostitutes, women, or Evelyn Oatley. As not only was her attack brutal and sickening, but her torture was prolonged and humiliating. In the centre of the room, with the headboard against the wall, between two blacked-out windows, was her double divan bed. Lying face up and sprawled diagonally across the freshly made sheets was the cold corpse of Evelyn Oatley. Her body splayed and posed, with her thin cotton vest and silk nightdress rolled up, exposing her legs genitals and breasts. With no one having heard her scream and the bruised outlines of a thumb and four fingers across her throat and neck, Evelyn was initially strangled by hand in an unprovoked attack which trapped her windpipe, crushed her vocal cords and made her more pliable as although she drifted in and out of consciousness for the next few minutes, what happened next was done while she was still alive. With her head slumped backward, hanging over the side of the bed, using the two-inch blade of an ever-ready razor, a five-and-a-half-inch wound was cut from her right ear to her voice box so deep it exposed her throat, split open her jugular vein and left a six-foot trail of blood from the bed to the door. As Evelyn clutched onto her last few moments alive, being immobile as her body was drained of blood, her bare legs were splayed wide. And as with Evelyn Hamilton, Although there was no semen found in her vagina, in and around her genitals were a series of twelve unusual wounds, some less than half an inch long, one more than three and a half inches long, but all were rough jagged tears, made using an old-style kitchen can opener, with a sharp hooked claw. But his sadism hadn't stopped there, as having placed the metal can opener next to her left knee and posed the blood-soaked razor blade next to Evelyn's ghostly white face, as well as an ominous set of blood-stained curling tongs, her sadistic killer, not content with her torture and humiliation, had inserted, four inches deep, her six-inch metal torch into her open 
and exposed vagina. The autopsy of Evelyn Oatley was conducted that day by Sir Bernard Spilsbury, home office pathologist and father of forensic science, who just 24 hours earlier had examined the body of Evelyn Hamilton, and although there were differences between both attacks, their ages, hair colour, occupations and the locations of their deaths, with one in public and the other at home, the similarities were striking. Both women were lonely and alone. Both women were in the West End. Both women had been robbed of roughly £20. Neither woman had been raped. Both had been posed. Both had been exposed. Both had unusual cuts to their genitals and non-specific internal injuries to their vaginas. One made using a six-inch metal torch and the other within sight of an eight-inch metal torch. And although the police wouldn't know this yet, in each case, their murderer had taken a souvenir. Was this the same man, or merely chance? Was this a spree killer, or a strikingly similar attack? With Evelyn Oatley's long fingernails being unbroken, they knew her attacker was swift. With bruise marks on their necks, the police knew they'd both been strangled by a left-hander. And although Superintendent Frederick Cherrill of Scotland Yard's Print Bureau had found a left thumb print on Evelyn Oatley's compact mirror, touched as her killer had rifled her handbag looking for money, and a left little fingerprint on the metal can opener he had used to mutilate his latest victim. None of these prints were on file. If the same man had murdered both women, the police wouldn't have time to even contemplate the horror of a spree killer in their midst. As with his violence escalating, his bloodlust pumping, and his sadism unsated. He was only two days into what would be a five-day killing spree. And as darkness fell over London, once again, he headed into Soho to find the next victim of the Blackout Ripper. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. On the 1st of September, 1939, following the Nazi annexation of Poland, Britain declared war on Germany. And in a brutal conflict which spanned four continents, and raged for six years and one day. By the end of the Second World War, over 73 million people would be dead. Being short on soldiers, the Military Training Act reinstated national service, and all healthy men aged 18 to 41 were conscripted into the Army, Navy and Air Force. Although vital, Conscription severely depleted Britain's emergency services. And even though London's Metropolitan Police Force maintained a total of roughly 19,500 officers for the duration of the war, their numbers were bolstered by inexperienced reservists, special constables and retired officers. And with the already overworked police officers burdened with new wartime duties, including chasing deserters, enforcing the blackout, and aiding the rescue effort after the Blitz. With the crime rate in England having increased from 303,000 offences per year in 1939 to 478,000 offences in 1945, the depleted police force struggled to stem a new flow of crimes such as looting, bootlegging and black market trades. At the height of the war, with the city in blackout and a population in fear as Nazi bombers loomed overhead, a new terror stalked the seedy streets of London's West End. With an insatiable hatred of women, a thirst for blood and a hunger to slash, torture and kill. No one knew his name, no one heard his voice and no one 
had seen his face. But over the last 24 hours, this sadistic maniac had strangled, posed and mutilated two seemingly unrelated women in two different parts of the West End, at the start of what would become a five-day killing spree. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, this is Murder Mile, and I present to you part three of the full, true and untold story of the Blackout Ripper. Today, I'm standing on Gosfield Street, W1, in an upmarket residential area called Fitzrovia, north of Soho, and barely five minutes walk from Wardour Street, Oxford Circus, and Regent's Park. Being a small one-way side street, lined with at least six trees, but no bushes, no grass, and no flowers, no cats, no dogs, and no birds, no stores, no cafes, and no pubs. No shoppers, no buskers, and no life whatsoever. Gosfield Street is quite possibly one of the most boring places in the West End. And number 9 to 10 Gosfield Street is a prime example. As being a red and brown bricked three-storey mansion house which is really just a posh way of saying a block of flats. Most residents seem to have an allergic reaction to the pavement, as the only time they're ever seen on the street is to slip into an Uber, scowl at a lost homeless man, shout at a dog plop dropper, shoo away an Asda delivery truck having secretly disguised their cheapo shopping in Waitrose bags, and noisily shushed a certain pot-bellied, bald-headed murder podcaster for daring to make a noise within earshot of their £1.1 million flat, having instantly devalued it simply because I'm a brummy. But back in 1942, 9-10 Gosfield Street truly was a working-class neighbourhood full of underpaid and undervalued skilled and unskilled workers, whether seamstresses, waitresses, cobblers, tailors, bakers, maids, and of course, prostitutes. And today, as much as the elderly may crow that, Oh, the streets were much safer in my day. There was no crime. We all left our doors unlocked, and everybody looked out for each other. This is a story which would greatly dispute that, as flat four at 9-10 to 10 Gosfield Street was the home of the third victim of the Blackout Ripper. And her name was Margaret Lowe. The early life of Margaret Lowe is as mysterious as her death. Being born on an unspecified date in 1899, Margaret Florence Campbell Burkitt was the twin sister of Sydney, one of four siblings raised in the coastal town of Napier in the Hawke's Bay area of New Zealand. Living in a picturesque setting surrounded by clear skies, blue seas 
sandy beaches and green fields. Although they were not a wealthy family, through hard work, struggle and dogged persistence, they lived a comfortable lifestyle in an idyllic part of the world. And everything was good. But for unfortunate reasons, known only to them, whether sickness, bereavement or financial hardship, the entire family uprooted back to England, where life would only get poorer, harder and darker. Having dramatically downsized from their own beautiful bedside home, to live in a shared lodging house, amongst the industrial smog of Hoxton in East London, with an expanding family and an ever-decreasing income. Life got worse for the family when their father was killed during the First World War, leaving behind a widowed mother with four young children and no pension or savings. Dreaming of living a better life and shamed by the stench, poverty and squalor she lived in, Margaret left school with a limited education and spent five years toiling away in several unskilled, dead-end jobs for long hours, very little pay and no future. What happened in between is uncertain. But in 1919, 20-year-old Margaret, under the alias of Peggy Campbell, was charged at Bow Street Magistrates Court convicted of living off the immoral earnings of prostitution and was fined 20 shillings. Shamed by her conviction, her sentence and the depths to which she had sunk, two years later, fate seemed to finally smile on Margaret as having fallen in love with 40-year-old Frederick George Lowe, a kindly widower who was 18 years her senior, on the 11th of October 1921, they married in the pretty market town of Rochford in Essex, gave birth to a beautiful baby girl called Barbara, and set up a fancy dress shop in the nearby coastal town of Southend-on-Sea. And having returned to an idyllic life, full of clear skies, blue seas, sandy beaches and green fields, once again, life was good. But after 11 years of marital bliss, on the 14th of December 1932, 51-year-old Frederick George Lowe died, leaving Margaret a widower with a four-year-old daughter to raise alone. And although Frederick had savings and insurance to secure his family's future, being racked with grief, depression and alcoholism, with the shop shut down, her home boarded up and her daughter Barbara taken into care. Margaret had lost everything. Within two years, Margaret had gone from being a happily married mother and a prosperous shopkeeper to a homeless, childless, penniless alcoholic. And seeing no other option, she moved back to London, worked a series of dead-end jobs, and later returned to prostitution, where just a few years later, she would die at the hands 
of the Blackout Ripper. Between Monday the 9th and Wednesday the 11th of February 1942, on three consecutive days, in three different streets within one mile of the West End, three women were murdered. But if their sadistic deaths were perpetrated by the same man, how does he know these women? And what connects them? Perhaps their birthplace. This we can rule out as Evelyn Hamilton was born and raised near Newcastle in the northeast of England, Evelyn Oakley in Lancashire in the northwest, and Margaret Lowe in Napier in New Zealand and Hoxton in East London. So none of these women were childhood friends. Education? This we can rule out as with Hamilton being degree-educated at Edinburgh University, and Oakley and Lowe having left school with no qualifications. Being raised in different counties and countries, almost eight years apart, none of them would have been school friends. Personality Again we can rule this out, as with Hamilton being a shy pharmacist, Oakley being a confident socialite, and Lowe being a depressed alcoholic. Even though they never lived on the same street, frequented the same pubs, and with the exception of a few occasional stays at the Three Arts Club for lectures, Hamilton never lived in London, so it's highly unlikely that they socialised together. In fact, as three wildly dissimilar women from different statuses, outlooks and situations. Although they were all within one square mile of each other during those three fateful days, based on the hundreds of witness statements taken by the police from anyone who knew them, there is no evidence at all that Evelyn Hamilton, Evelyn Oatley and Margaret Lowe ever met or knew each other and the only time that their names were linked together was when they were murdered. By 1942, 43-year-old Margaret Florence Lowe had been a West End prostitute for eight years. But as familiar as she was to sex workers and servicemen alike, very little is known about her as although she went by the aliases of Peggy Campbell and Peggy Burkett, locally she was known as the Lady. Physically, Margaret was unremarkable. As being a portly woman of five foot and five inches tall, with neck-length brunette hair and a side parting, neat makeup, a maternal smile and a slightly bulbous nose brought on by the effects of chronic alcoholism, she easily resembled any other prostitute in Piccadilly. But as a person, the lady was very much a woman of many contradictions. Neatly dressed in polished black shoes, shiny black leather gloves, a black leather handbag, an elegant felt hat and a large fur coat. 
Although Margaret had been convicted three times of soliciting for sex and behaving in an indecent manner, each time using different aliases, she always walked with her head held high as if she was a well-to-do lady off for a night at the theatre. As a plummy-voiced woman with an indeterminately posh accent who enunciated her H's, said whom instead of who, we instead of us, and one instead of I. Although she'd never denigrate herself by swigging back a pint or picking up punters in the local pubs and clubs, she was often found drunk and tottering the curbs of the West End, singing little ditties and slurring her words. And as an obviously refined woman, full of airs and graces, who was too busy to stop, too posh to chat, and too senior to socialise with anyone below her status, Margaret always walked alone. No friends, no joy, just drink. A sad, lonely lady, clinging to the long-lost memory of a life which once was. Unlike most prostitutes, Margaret didn't have a patch. Instead, she chose to walk in a large square, right around Soho, from Shaftesbury Avenue to Charing Cross, Oxford Street to Regent Street, and back to Piccadilly Circus. And with her only working after 11 o'clock at night, it was almost as if Margaret didn't want to be seen. Describing prostitution as a dirty piece of work, Margaret hated her job, resented her punters, and only did the dirty deed to survive. But as a chronically depressed alcoholic, who sold her body to earn money, earned money to buy booze, and drank booze to dull her senses so she could earn more money by having sex, she was trapped in a vicious circle, of which there was no way out. And although she was nicknamed the Lady, as a feisty, argumentative and belligerent boozer, who wouldn't stand for ill manners, coarse language or any rough stuff, she was widely known to be a real tough cookie and a scrapper who could easily handle herself. And in an illegal job, which involved inviting numerous strangers back to her flat for sex during the blackout, being handy with her fists was a skill which, unfortunately for Margaret Lowe, came in very handy. In the early hours of Friday the 30th of January 1942, just two weeks prior to her death, in flat four on the ground floor in numbers 9 to 10 Gosfield Street, Margaret was physically assaulted in her bed by a punter she had picked up in Piccadilly. Forcibly barging the Canadian soldier out of her door, with fists flailing and feet flying, Margaret screamed at the top of her lungs, Help! Police! Murder! Causing such a ruckus, it awoke her neighbours, Florence Bartolini in flat one, and Ralph George Stevens in flat two. And although the police were called, statements were taken, 
and the worst of her injuries was a badly bruised chest. With the man having fled, and Margaret unwilling to press charges, for fear of implicating herself in the illegal act of prostitution, the case was dropped, and her attacker was never caught. One week later, Margaret was assaulted again. Two weeks later, she would be dead. Between roughly midnight and just after 1am, on Monday the 9th, Tuesday the 10th and Wednesday the 11th of February 1942, three wildly different and unrelated women, who witnesses claim had never met, were strangled, posed and brutally murdered on different streets in London's West End. But if these three women had died at the hands of the same man, why did he pick them? Physically, all three women were between 5 foot 1 and 5 foot 5 inches in height, aged from their mid-30s to early 40s, and with none of them being either stunning, ugly, or memorable in any way, the best they can be described is average and unremarkable. And that's where the physical similarities end. Evelyn Hamilton was an average-sized brunette, Evelyn Oatley was a slim blonde, and Margaret Lowe was a portly brunette. And although he clearly picked women that a taller, heavier man could overpower, he didn't seem attracted to one type of woman. Geographically, the only similarities were that they were all murdered in the West End, with all three having died on different streets, Montague Place, Wardour Street and Gosfield Street, two having died in private flats, one in a public space, and with no witnesses or suspects of any kind, and only two fingerprints found which didn't match a single felon on Scotland Yard's print index, the police had no idea who their killer or killers were. And even with a wealth of witness statements from a wide variety of sources, the overworked and understaffed police force had no idea where any of these women were picked up, who had approached them, or how they had met their murderer. But what follows are the last known sightings of Margaret Florence Lowe. On the morning of Tuesday the 10th of February 1942, at roughly the same time that the police were examining an horrific crime scene, barely a few streets away at 153 Wardour Street, involving a semi-clad lady, a razor blade, a can opener and a trail of blood six feet long. Margaret walked into a butcher's shop at 41 Great Titchfield Street, one street west of her home, and spoke to the owner, Emily Harris. Unlike her usual grumpy, feisty and frumpy self, on this day, Margaret was in a chipper mood. Her dark mood had lifted. 
as with the weekend approaching, Margaret's daughter, no longer a sullen six-year-old placed into care at St Gabriel's Orphanage in Southend-on-Sea, but now a vivacious 15-year-old who had blossomed into a strong young woman, Barbara Lowe would be paying her mother a regular visit. This was the one good thing in Margaret's miserable life and her last connection to happier times. Excited at the prospect of seeing her daughter, Margaret didn't buy anything at the butcher's. Instead, using her weekly ration, she asked Emily to put aside some lamb's livers, kidneys, bones and fat so she could bake her baby a suet pudding. A real treat during the hardships of wartime England. Sadly, being so solitary, the next confirmed sighting of Margaret wasn't until 12.30am, a full 13 hours later and roughly an hour before her death. But this was also her last known sighting. Kathleen Nora Clark, a local sex worker, spotted the prostitute she knew only as the lady. Strolling by Eros News Theatre on the corner of Shaftesbury Avenue and Piccadilly Circus, heading by Monaco's restaurant, where barely one night before, Evelyn Oatley had waved goodnight to Laura Denmark and Molly de Santos Alves, with the two of them having picked up a red-headed corporal and a fair-haired aircraftman. As always, Margaret was alone. Impeccably dressed in her polished black shoes, shiny black leather gloves, black leather handbag, an elegant felt hat and a large fur coat. She smoked a cigarette from her silver cigarette case as she shimmied along the curbside. Slightly tipsy, singing merrily to herself, her spirits high as although the night was bitterly cold, she had something to look forward to. At approximately 1.10am, two independent witnesses living at 9-10 Gosfield Street, Florence Bartolini in Flat 1 and Ralph George Stevens in Flat 2, both basement flats situated below the communal door, heard the unmistakable sound of the woman they knew as Mrs. Lowe, unlock the door and quietly enter, accompanied by a man. And although they didn't see him, his heavy footsteps had the dull thump of men's boots, and his accent was unmistakably English. Although their conversation was unintelligible, their voices were low, their tone was cordial, and she welcomed the man into her flat. But unusually for Margaret, who witnesses state wasn't the best of neighbours, and often kept the whole house awake by playing loud music on the gramophone in the dead of night to deaden the sounds of a sex worker in action. After a brief chat and the clink of glasses, there was silence. After which, Florence and George fell asleep.
No one heard any screams, shouts or cries. Nothing was broken, smashed or trashed. And with the exception of Margaret, no one saw his face. In fact, the only sound which was heard the whole night was at an indeterminate hour when bleary-eyed Florence Bartolini was briefly awoken by the heavy thud of a flat door being shut, the communal door being opened, and a heavy-booted man briskly walking into Gosfield Street and heading right in the direction of Baker Street, Warren Street and Regent's Park. And with these being the usual sounds heard nightly from the flat of a 43-year-old alcoholic sex worker, thinking nothing more of it, Florence rolled over and went back to sleep. So with very little eyewitness testimony and very few pieces of tangible evidence, what can we say for certain about the man who murdered Margaret Florence Lowe and possibly Evelyn Hamilton and Evelyn Oatley, if this was him at all? She clearly felt comfortable and unthreatened in his presence. So either she knew him, liked him, or he didn't look, sound or act like a man who deep down was a sadistic sexual monster. If so, was he driven to kill by drink, drugs or mental illness? Was his hatred of women triggered by a childhood trauma having talked to Margaret? Or was he a maniac with a supreme level of self-control? Just like Evelyn Hamilton and Evelyn Oatley, Margaret was alone when she was picked up. She often felt lonely and depressed and had been drinking that night. And with all three women last seen in or near infamous West End restaurants, Hamilton in Maison Lyonnaise, and Oatley and Lowe by Monaco's. Was he a regular there, with money to spend, drinks to be drank and girls to be chased? Clearly being confident, pleasant and approachable, who all three ladies felt safe with, was he a local man with a good knowledge of the West End streets? Was he an experienced man used to chatting up ladies and picking up prostitutes? Or was he the type of man you would instantly trust, whether a policeman, a fireman, an air raid warden, a soldier, a sailor or an airman? And with Margaret being a feisty lady who was well known to fend off any fiends with her fists and feet, just as Evelyn Hamilton had, her scuffed shoes having kicked chunks of brick mortar off the inside of the air raid shelter, had their killer learnt his lesson by striking fast and strangling first, giving himself ample time to sadistically mutilate their limp, dying and lifeless bodies. Of course, with no sightings, no witnesses and no suspects, most of this would have been pure guesswork. And regardless of whether these murders were connected, 
if they were the work of the same sexual sadist, or if Margaret Florence Lowe was the third victim of the Blackout Ripper. As a lonely widow, living alone, in a single flat, with no friends and no close family, who spent her time surrounded by strangers, no one knew that she had even been murdered until almost three days later. The next morning, on Wednesday the 11th of February 1942, at 11am, Florence Bartolini spotted a brown paper parcel at the foot of the door of Flat 4, delivered by the postman, but as of yet uncollected and unopened. And with the large gift being addressed to Mrs Lowe, and Florence's day chock full of chores, she ignored it and left by the communal door, unaware of the unimaginable horror just a few feet away. When she returned, six hours later, the parcel was still there. The next morning, it was still there. And the next evening, it was still there. And as the residents from nine different flats all walked by, spied the parcel, stared at it quizzically, commenting about how unusually quiet Flat 4 was, with no yelling, no music, and no heavy-booted men waking them up at all hours of the night. Still, no one did anything. On Friday the 13th of February, at 3.50pm, having caught the train from Southend-on-Sea, eager to stay the weekend, see the sights, and tuck into the delicious suet pudding her mother had promised to bake, 15-year-old Barbara Joan Lowe entered 9-10 Gosfield Street and knocked on the door of Flat 4. But there was no reply. Having spotted a brown paper parcel at her feet, postmarked with Monday's date, Barbara queried with the neighbours who confirmed it was odd that they hadn't seen or heard from her mother in days. And gripped with a queasy feeling of dread, Barbara called the police. At 4.30pm, Detective Sergeant Leonard Blacktop of C Division from West End Central Police Station on nearby Savile Row arrived at 9-10 Gosfield Street to investigate the possible disappearance of a 43-year-old alcoholic. Nothing more. Unable to access Flat 4, owing to a locked door, and Barbara not having a key. DS Blacktop deduced that most alcoholics prone to lapses in memory would be likely to keep a spare key nearby. And having found one under her mat, the detective entered the flat. On initial inspection, although with the lights off, the electricity meter money having ran out, and the windows covered in blackout curtains, the flat was in total darkness. But as DS Blacktop shone his torch around the tiny congested sitting room, nothing seemed disturbed, out of place or damaged. 
as he walked along the thin dark passageway towards the cramped kitchenette in the back room. DS Blacktop noticed what looked like the contents of her handbag strewn across the kitchen table. A few letters, three ration books, a pink lipstick, two Yale keys and a six-inch metal torch. But no money, no handbag, and unusually for a heavy smoker, no cigarette case. As well as a bottle of stout, which was three-quarters full, but no glasses. And with the kitchen cupboards opened, rifled, and their contents scattered, having spilled all types of cutlery, including forks, knives, and a can opener, across the work surfaces. It looked like a burglary, but so far, there was still no sign of Margaret. The only room left to try was her bedroom. With the door locked, no suitable key found, and three days having passed, with Barbara's permission, DS Blacktop forced the bedroom door. And although the room was dark, in the middle, lying on her bed, he saw the unmistakable sight of the strangled and mutilated body of 43-year-old Margaret Florence Lowe. Having escalated the case up to Chief Inspector Edward Greeno of Scotland Yard, this was now no longer the hunt for a missing person. This was a murder investigation. In an unnervingly similar crime scene to that of Evelyn Oatley, it didn't look as if a struggle had taken place. The coal fire had been on, the bedside lamp was off, her clothes were neatly folded and placed on a wooden chair, and on the mantelpiece was a half-full glass of stout, which two people had shared. In fact, the only detritus in the whole room was a used condom on the bed and the broken handle of a fire poker. Just like Evelyn Oatley, Margaret Lowe was semi-clad and lying flat on her back. Her lifeless body spread diagonally across the double divan bed, as resting on a blood-soaked pillow was her purple swollen head as the wide inky black pupils of her bloodshot eyes stared vacantly towards the door. And as before, his attack was swift, violent and shocking, as having struck Margaret across the left side of her face, head and jaw with a metal fire poker, he had used such force that the poker broke. With his victim suitably subdued, grabbing a black stocking off the chair, he tied the taut nylon so tightly it left a one-inch indentation around her neck. And having securely knotted it, with the blood forcing her swollen purple face to rupture and mucus to seep from her nose and mouth, as she gasped her last few gulps of air, during her last few moments alive, he set about mutilating 
the rest of her body. With her nightdress rucked up around her bare breasts, her legs spread wide and her knees drawn up to her hips. Lying between her thighs, as if he was showing off his trophies, was a white-handled bread knife, a black-handled table knife, a potato peeler and a broken piece of fire poker. Across her abdomen was a five-inch wound, so deep it exposed her intestines and sliced her uterus. Across her right thigh was a ten-inch slash, so deep it severed the vein, bleeding so profusely her bed was soaked with blood. And all of which he did when she was either alive, dying or unconscious. And in a final act of humiliation, with her electric metal torch in the kitchen and nothing else to hand, he inserted a six-inch candle deep into her vagina, almost as if it was his birthday. The autopsy of Margaret Florence Lowe was conducted at Paddington Mortuary, once again by Sir Bernard Spilsbury, in the presence of Chief Inspector Edward Greenow. And the similarities between all three victims were unnerving. They'd all been robbed, as having found Margaret's handbag hidden behind a paper carrier bag in the kitchenette. The bank books and anything identifiable remained, but her money was missing. They all had items stolen. From Evelyn Hamilton, he had taken a handkerchief and a pencil. From Evelyn Oatley, an initialed silver cigarette case. And from Margaret Lowe, a silver cigarette case. And yet, if he truly was a sexual sadist, why didn't he steal souvenirs, like panties, bras and stockings? Although violated, none of these women were raped. As with no semen found in any of their vaginas, and a discarded condom found on Margaret's bed, did sex take place, or was he incapable? They had all been mutilated, both pre- and post-mortem, using a strange selection of knives, razors and kitchen cutlery, including a can opener and a potato peeler, none of which he'd brought with him, instead making do with whatever was to hand, suggesting their murders weren't premeditated. They had all been violated, having had various objects inserted into their vaginas, including possibly a metal torch with Evelyn Hamilton, a metal torch and potentially a set of curling tongs with Evelyn Oatley, and a six-inch candle and potentially a fire poker with Margaret Lowe, none of which he'd brought with him. Instead, once again, making do with whatever was to hand. And although he changed his method of death, having manually strangled Evelyn Hamilton and Evelyn Oatley with his hand, 
and garroted Margaret low with a black stocking. By the way he had left it tied around her neck, once again the police knew that the attacker was left-handed. Margaret Florence Lowe was unmistakably his third victim. And again, he had made a big mistake. As Superintendent Frederick Cheryl of Scotland Yard's Print Bureau had dusted the crime scene and found three sets of fingerprints. One on the base of the candlestick, having removed the candle to violate her. One on the bottle of stout, which he'd poured in the kitchen and one on the half-full glass of stout he had left on the mantelpiece, featuring both of their fingerprints and suggesting that they had shared a final drink. And although they didn't match any on the police index files, the fingerprints matched those found on the can opener and the compact mirror which belonged to Evelyn Oatley. but by the time of Margaret Lowe's autopsy, it was too late. As with her mutilated body, having lay undiscovered for three days, and the police only aware of two unrelated murders in two different streets, they had no idea that a sadistic spree killer was on the loose. So by Thursday the 12th of February 1942, Four days into his five-day killing spree, with three women dead and three unsuspecting women walking the streets, unaware of the horror which awaited them, he headed back into the West End, and the Blackout Ripper went in search of his next victim. By 1942, with everyday essentials like butter, sugar, eggs, milk, meat, flour, fuel, and even clothes in limited supply and strictly rationed, life was tough, money was tight, and ordinary people would be forced to make desperate decisions simply to survive. Having yet to fully appreciate how invaluable women would be in Britain's defence, the Second World War proved to be a turning point for women's suffrage. As with men dying in their millions, women would become the backbone of the war effort, not only later as conscripted soldiers, but also as munitions workers, doctors, fire crews, hauliers, air raid wardens, and police constables. With the economy in disarray and honest jobs being badly paid, even good women were forced to take drastic steps. And with the cities full of soldiers, sailors and airmen, with heavy wallets and empty hearts, some women turned to prostitution, becoming a housewife by day and a whore by night, in a clandestine affair hidden from their husbands. 
But unbeknownst to any woman, during February 1942, a sadistic sexual sadist stalked the blacked-out and bombed-out streets of the West End. So far, three unrelated women had been tortured, posed and mutilated on three consecutive nights in the first half of his five-day killing spree. No one knew his name, and yet all three women had found him confident, charming and unassuming. No one saw his face, and yet, in his presence, they all felt safe, happy and comfortable. No one saw him kill, and yet, as he smiled, chatted, drank, none of these women had any idea of the horror which awaited them at the hands of this homicidal maniac. But tonight, with his bloodlust escalating, and his sexual drive unsated, he would go in search of his next victim. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, this is Murder Mile, and I present to you part four of the full, true and untold story of the Blackout Ripper. Today, I'm standing in Sussex Gardens, W2, in an area most people call Paddington, which was formerly known as Tyburnia, a district made famous as the host of London's bloodiest execution site, the Tyburn Tree, a hangman's gallows situated at Marble Arch, at the junction of Edgware Road and Oxford Street, where many a bad lad's neck was stretched, yanked and snapped. Constructed during the Victorian era of the early to mid-1800s, although most of the greenery has since been tarmacked and turned into drives, Sussex Gardens is still an affluent area, consisting of one long L-shaped street with tall, thin and stunning brown-bricked five- and six-storey terrace houses on both sides, with tall white windows and white Doric columns on every door. And although each flat currently sells for roughly £1 million apiece, owing to its proximity to Hyde Park, being just one street away from Paddington Station, a haven for hookers and bored businessmen with boners, although still beautiful, much of Sussex Gardens has lost its initial value, having been repurposed as flats, offices and modestly priced hotels, full of plumbers, brickies and roofers who can lay pipe, trowel mortar, and repoint tiles, whether you want it done or not. And yet they are physically incapable of seeing without ogling, yawning without belching, pissing without dribbling, thinking without farting, talking without saying fucking, or watching sport, which they pronounce sport. And yet it was here, in the well-presented ground-floor flat, of 187 Sussex Gardens, that the brutal murder of the Blackout Ripper's next victim occurred. And her name was Doris Junet. Wrongly assumed to be French, 
Doris Junet was actually born Doris Elizabeth Robson on either the 21st of March in the year 1909, according to her husband, 1906, according to the National Census, or 1907, according to her birth certificate. And although she may have shaved an odd year off her age here and there, there was no denying that Doris Robson was ashamed of her impoverished past. Born amidst the industrial working-class sprawl of Leamington in Northumberland, in the northeast of England, although Doris's birthplace was just four miles from Brighton, where nine years earlier Evelyn Margaret Hamilton was born, the difference between their upbringings was colossal. As being surrounded by collieries, factories, railways, glassworks and iron foundries, everything her family owned which wasn't much, was smothered in dirt, dust, and a thick blanket of black soot. Originally from Farlham in Cumbria, Doris's mother, Elizabeth, was one of nine children born to Thomas and Barbara Robson. And although they survived on a coal miner's wage and lived in a cramped lodging house with three other families, their children were well-educated with four of the siblings becoming school teachers, including Elizabeth and her younger sisters, Isabella and Mary. Sadly, as an unmarried 41-year-old single parent, shortly before the birth of her only child, Elizabeth died owing to complications and Doris Elizabeth Robson, who had no mother, no father, and no siblings, was raised by her maternal aunties, Isabella and Mary, in the gloomy windswept headland of Hartlepool. The next two decades of Doris's life are a bit of a mystery, as with no school reports, no census records, and no accurate date of birth, it's hard to trace where she went, who with, and why. But being a working-class northern female, who had to live with the shame of being born a bastard, to a dead mother, an absent father, and adopted by middle-aged spinsters, life can't have been easy. But 20 years later, by 1935, Doris had moved to London, to make a better life for herself. Being unskilled, unqualified, and having no career to fall back on, Doris didn't want to work, to slog her guts out 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in an endless slew of filth, drudgery, and exhaustion, in a joyless job for a thankless boss, and all for a pittance. Doris felt she deserved better and dreamed of becoming a kept woman who lived in a posh house, wore mink furs, fine jewels and never had to lift a finger, having bagged herself a wealthy husband. And in August 1935, her dream had come true. Believing in love at first sight, 
Within three months of meeting, on the 4th of November 1935, at Paddington Registry Office, 25-year-old Doris Elizabeth Robson married 60-year-old Henri Alfred Junet, a naturalised French citizen who managed several hotels in the southeast of England. And although their marriage was impulsive, their 35-year age gap was obvious, and whether she actually loved him was debatable. As a wealthy hotelier, with a silver Rolls-Royce, a large bank balance, and being a kindly man who showered his wife with expensive gifts, like fine furs, a gold watch, and a black fountain pen engraved with her new initials of DJ, Mrs. Doris Elizabeth Junet moved with her husband from Eastbourne to Farnborough until eventually they moved to London. And although Henri was aware of Doris's desperate days, when being broke and hungry, she worked as a West End sex worker, she had assured him that those days were long behind her. And finally, with Henri managing the very prestigious five-star Royal Court Hotel in Sloane Square, in a very affluent area of Kensington, Doris truly was living the dream, and life was good, as together they moved into a luxurious ground-floor flat situated at 187 Sussex Gardens. Henri and Doris Junet moved into flat one of 187 Sussex Gardens on Monday the 26th of January 1942, by which time, although air raids were regular, looting was rife and rationing was routine, the Blackout Ripper was roughly 98 miles away in the west of England and was still six days away from being relocated to London. So for now, Doris Junet was safe. Evelyn Hamilton was alive, but about to be laid off. Evelyn Oatley was being comforted by her rather dull but eternally loving husband, Harold. And Margaret Florence Lowe was drunk, not realising that the next time that her beloved daughter would see her again, Margaret and three other women would be dead. Over those seven years of marriage, Doris had become accustomed to the finer things in life. Gorging on good food, quaffing fine wines, and sleeping on silk sheets. And as she was waited on hand and foot by butlers, maids, and chefs, and escorted to fancy parties in a chauffeur-driven silver Rolls-Royce, and being immaculately dressed in the very latest fashions, with manicured nails, quaffered hair, and pristine makeup. The ever stylish Mrs. Doris Junet looked very much like a real lady. But following a series of bad business deals, lengthy court trials, escalating gambling debts, and with the war seriously having put the boot in on tourism, the Rolls Royce was sold. The servants were laid off, and Henri was almost broke. 
and with no savings to access, a status to upkeep, and a trophy wife with expensive taste to fund. When 67-year-old Henri should have been enjoying his retirement, he was working day and night at the prestigious five-star Royal Court Hotel in Sloan Square. But not as the hotel's owner. Now, he was simply a manager. Henri would later describe their marriage as perfectly happy, we never had a disagreement. But for Doris, this was far from the truth. Before moving back to London, as his funds dried up and life became a little more drab, being petrified of returning to her impoverished roots, Doris regularly travelled from Farnborough and Eastbourne to the West End, under the guise of a bored housewife heading to Piccadilly to meet some pals, when really she had returned to prostitution. Nicknamed Olga, as although many prostitutes thought that she was French owing to her surname, many punters thought she looked Russian, a fact that Doris never denied, as being a well-dressed lady with a mysterious and exotic past paid better than being plain old Doris Robson, the Geordie. And as a 32-year-old, 5 foot 10 inch tall brunette with long legs, a slim build and striking features, a mixture of hard, moody and demure, Doris was very different from the usual prostitute. And being very much an elegant lady who was both alluring and aloof, Olga drew in a much wealthier clientele, whether businessmen, diplomats, officials, officers, and hopefully, Doris thought, an older, richer gentleman, who could keep her in the life to which she had become accustomed. As with Henri almost broke, Doris needed a new sugar daddy. To say that Henri didn't trust his wife would be an understatement. And although most nights his job dictated that he had to sleep at the Royal Court Hotel, every evening, from 7pm till 9.30pm, for those two and a half hours, Henri and Doris Junet would settle down to dinner in their ground floor flat at 187 Sussex Gardens. By 7pm, on Thursday the 12th of February 1942, as Henri and Doris tucked into what would be their last meal together, as the icy-cold corpses of Evelyn Hamilton and Evelyn Oatley were lying on a slab at Paddington and Westminster mortuaries, and the mutilated body of Margaret Florence Lowe had lain still, silent and undiscovered for 40 hours. Barely one mile away, at the Volunteer Public House on Baker Street, a red-headed corporal was necking back pints and supping free whiskies with a pleasant, blue-eyed, fair-haired airman who was a charmer with the ladies, whose pockets were flush with cash, and having already slaughtered three women, tonight he would go in search of his next victim. 
The last four hours of Doris Junet's life were unremarkable. Having finished their evening meal of chicken chasseur, root vegetables and white wine, needing some fresh air, Doris donned a stylish black velvet hat, a long black coat with a fur collar, a black leather handbag and a large black umbrella, as the recent snowy blizzard had turned to rain and having left the dirty crockery on the dinner table, Doris accompanied Henri on the four-minute walk to Paddington Station, where having promised her husband she'd head straight home. As he hopped on the westbound district line train to Sloan Square, she waved him goodbye for one last time. But Doris had no plans to return home. At 9.40pm, with the Blackout Ripper still in Piccadilly, having escorted a 30-year-old woman called Greta Haywood back to the Universal Brasserie on German Street, Doris was spotted by local prostitute Patricia Borg, standing at the junction of Edgware Road and Sussex Gardens. A busy crossroads, just a three-minute walk from her home, and a ten-minute stroll, from the air raid shelter on Montague Place. And although Patricia, and the lady she knew only as Olga, only spoke very briefly, opening with the greeting of, Hello stranger, and closing with, I see you. Having met a client, serviced his needs, and received her money, all within 15 minutes, by the time that Patricia had returned to the same spot, Doris was gone. Moments later, two call girls called Ruby Ricketts and Grace chatted to Doris as she strolled south down Edgware Road towards Marble Arch, where accompanied by her friend Beatrice Lang, and needing a stiff drink to keep her strength up for the long night ahead, Doris drank a whiskey and soda at a corner house tea room called Maison Lyonnaise, where just four nights earlier, a shy pharmacist called Evelyn Hamilton had potentially met her murderer as she celebrated her 41st birthday alone. But that night, being in Piccadilly, the blackout ripper would not frequent Maison Lyonnaise, so as the two friends chatted over a drink Doris confided to Beatrice that with money tight, their marriage tense, and the couple sleeping in separate beds, Doris had a date tonight with her new sugar daddy, a wealthy regular client in a military uniform, who she referred to only as the captain. At 10.20pm on Thursday the 12th of February 1942, Doris and Beatrice left Maison Lyonnaise, walked east along Oxford Street and parted ways outside of Selfridges. And with Doris eager to see her new beau, she headed into Piccadilly, right into the path of the Blackout Ripper. Or she would have done, had fate not taken an unexpected twist 
as with his wallet full, his liver pickled, and his sexual appetite unsated. Having hopped in a taxi with a 34-year-old red-headed sex worker called Catherine Mulcahy, as Doris walked east along Oxford Street to Piccadilly, the blackout ripper headed west to Paddington. And although for now, Doris Junet was safe, an hour later, she would be dead. How she knew the captain, who he was, or whether she had actually met him that night, we shall never know as having waved her friend goodbye, Beatrice was the last person to see Doris alive. For whatever reason, whether the captain was late, early, or had cancelled their date, shortly after 11pm, Doris had left the semi-safety of Piccadilly Circus, had returned home to Paddington, and as the cruel hand of fate took another unexpected twist, with the red-headed sex worker, Catherine Mulcahy, living just one street southeast of 187 Sussex Gardens, a short while later, whether for money, boredom, or companionship, Doris Junet opened her door to the Blackout Ripper. At 7pm, on Friday the 13th of February 1942, regular as clockwork, Henri hopped on the eastbound district line train from Sloan Square to Paddington Station, strolled the four-minute walk to Sussex Gardens, and like Pavlov's dog, the second he saw home, his stomach started to rumble. But something didn't seem right, as by the white Doric columns of his front door, on his doorstep, a full 12 hours after they had been delivered, he spotted two bottles of milk. Feeling confused, as Henri entered his blacked-out flat, calling out his wife's name, Doris, but getting no reply, Doris, he spotted on the table their dirty dinner dishes, where they had left them the night before. The bread stale, the cabbage cold, the white sauce congealed. But there was no sign of Doris anywhere. Not in the front room, not in the kitchen, not in the bathroom. All that remained was the bedroom. With the key missing and the lock shut, as much as Henri jiggled the handle and shoved against the panels, the small-framed 67-year-old couldn't budge the heavy wooden door. But spying through the keyhole, and seeing the dull red glow and the soft warm heat of the electric bar fire, it was clear that someone was inside. And as much as he banged on the door, still nobody answered. Deeply concerned, Henri fetched the police and at 7.50pm, two burly bobbies from Paddington Police Station, PC Payne and PC Cox, with Henri's permission, used their considerable bulk to bash down the sturdy wooden door. 
sparing Henri from the horror in the bedroom beyond. PC Cox sat with him on the sofa, a comforting hand over his shoulder, and gave him the bad news. But what PC Payne saw that night would be burned into his eyes forever. At a little after 8pm, just three hours after the grisly discovery of the mutilated remains of Margaret Florence Lowe, one mile away at 9-10 Gosfield Street, Divisional Detective Inspector Leonard Clare, the detective who was heading up the murder investigation into Margaret Hamilton, four nights prior on Montague Place, entered the flat at 187 Sussex Gardens. Although instantly shocked, as the small dark room hung heavy with the stench of steamy vomit, as inexperienced officers struggled to cope with the sight. For Detective Inspector Clare, this was the all-too-familiar calling card of the Blackout Ripper. As before, there was no sign of a struggle. Feeling comfortable, reassured by his kind face, his sweet smile, his soft English voice, and his twinkling blue eyes. Doris was lulled into a warm sense of security as she led the tall, handsome, and fair-haired man into her bedroom. And although, like most of her clients, he had been drinking, he was charming, alluring, and wearing the uniform of a military man, a hero, and in his company, she felt safe. As she welcomed him in, Doris had already hung up her long black fur-collared coat in the wardrobe, perched her black velvet hat and black leather handbag on the top shelf, and placed her dress, stockings, brassiere and brown brogue shoes on a small wooden chair by the toasty warmth of the electric fire. And now she was dressed in nothing but a black quilted bathrobe. With the small back bedroom comprising of a wardrobe, a dressing table, a chair, and two twin beds placed a few inches apart, Doris sat on the bed farthest from the door, smoking a cigarette as the man disrobed, shedding his long military greatcoat, unbuttoning his blue tunic, kicking off his heavy black rubber-soled boots, and flinging off his jauntily worn woolen side cap which was emblazoned with a military insignia. And even though his tie was crooked, his knuckles were scuffed, his breath smelled of whiskey, and his belt was missing, having done this many times before, Doris didn't feel threatened at all. What happened next is unknown. As with her being a prostitute, with him being a punter, and several male rubber contraceptives found scattered about the bed and the floor, two of which had been unrolled and used. Sex may have taken place. 
but with the bedroom floor littered with spent cigarette butts, and neither of the condoms containing any semen. Maybe, for whatever reason, sex didn't take place. And yet, as far as we know, what happened next was unprovoked, unexpected, and shocking. With a swift hard blow across her left cheek, which fractured her jaw, rendered her giddy, and knocked her onto the bed, before she could scream for help, with his powerful thighs straddling her arms and torso, his full body weight pinning her down, as he reached across to the small wooden chair, he grabbed one of her black stockings, wrapped it around her neck, and with both hands, he pulled tight. Gasping for air, the wooden inhale, and screaming words which no one would hear, as Doris stared up at the grinning man sat on top of her, with her face all purple and swollen, her vision fading to black as her pupils dilated and the whites of her eyes ruptured with blood. Her left-handed attacker tied the tights in a knot under her left jaw, leaving a depression around her neck half an inch deep, which fractured her larynx and compressed her tongue, tonsils, and windpipe. And as she drifted in and out of consciousness, the blackout ripper proceeded to mutilate her body, whether she was dead or alive. Using a razor blade from her dressing table, and another as yet unidentified household weapon, with his victim suitably subdued and immobile, he took his time, savouring every moment. As he sliced a five-inch slit from her stomach to her privates, slashed a three-inch gash through her pubic hair, sunk the razor blade deep into her genitals, inflicting a six-and-a-half-inch wound in and across her vagina, and using two converging cuts he carved a four-inch slit around her left breast, which almost severed her nipple. The one saving grace being that, unlike his other victims, no candle, no torch, nor curling tongs were inserted into her vagina. As with the sheer terror of her agonizing death, causing her to wet herself, with the bed soaked in a pungent mix of blood and urine, he decided against it. With his bloodlust sated, he calmly dressed, fastening his blue tunic and trousers, buttoning up his brown shirt and tie, pulling on his large military greatcoat, tying the laces on his black heavy boots, and fixing, at a jaunty angle, his woollen side-cap. And needing to satisfy his greed, from her black leather handbag he stole roughly five pounds worth of untraceable banknotes, and from her lifeless wrist he stole a gold watch, given to Doris 
by her husband. As a crude memento of a delightful night, he pocketed her black fountain pen, uniquely etched with her very identifiable initials of DJ. And even more bizarrely, from her dressing table, he took her worthless greeny-blue comb with several teeth missing. But before he left, as one final act of humiliation to conduct upon the corpse of Doris Junet, laying her lifeless body diagonally across the bed, with her black quilted bathrobe spread wide, her left arm outstretched, her right hand across her genitals, her purple swollen head hanging over the side of the bed, her tongue protruding and her bloodshot eyes gazing towards the door. He posed her lifeless body as a grisly sight to greet the poor unfortunate who would come looking for her. Having tidied his hair, straightened his tie, and checked he hadn't left any personal possessions behind, his wallet, his keys, his hat, his military ID, or anything stupid which would incriminate him. Having been cautious not to leave any fingerprints, having wiped down anything he'd touched, and with no screams, no noise, and no witnesses of any kind, he locked the bedroom door, disposed of the key, strolled out of 187 Sussex Gardens, and into the inky black night, the Blackout Ripper disappeared. Across five nights, over four streets in London's West End, four totally different and entirely unrelated women, for whatever reason, had been ripped, tortured and posed by an unidentified sadistic maniac. All had suffered the same fate, strangulation, mutilation and humiliation. All had been sliced, beaten and violated, all had been robbed, but only of untraceable banknotes, never bank books or ration cards. And although his sexual sadism compelled him to steal such high-risk trinkets as a handkerchief etched with a unique laundry mark, an anniversary gift gold wristwatch, an initialed fountain pen, and a monogrammed cigarette case containing a photo of the victim's mother. None of these items had been found. And with no physical sightings, no credible suspects, and no fingerprints which matched anyone on Scotland Yard's entire police index, the police were at a loss as to who this man was. And it's here that his killing spree would cease. Four women were dead. 41-year-old pharmacist Evelyn Margaret Hamilton, 34-year-old dancer, wife and sex worker Evelyn Oatley, 43-year-old veteran prostitute and mother Margaret Florence Lowe, and 32-year-old Doris Elizabeth Junet. A woman raised in such poverty she would do anything never to be poor or hungry again. And yet her desperate need 
drove her to her own death. And having been discovered at 7pm on Friday the 13th of February 1942, a full 18 hours later, although Doris Junet was the last woman found, she wasn't his fourth victim in his five-day killing spree. She was his sixth. As barely an hour before Doris's death, two unrelated women on two different streets in two separate parts of the West End will become the fourth and fifth victims of the Blackout Ripper. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.